Hey, this is Joseph Massonary. I'm the pastor at Cornerstone, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you. I hope this helps you build your faith. I hope in some way that God will challenge you with a new perspective as you listen. Enjoy the message. I haven't been here for a while to preach. I've been in church, and I have to tell you, I absolutely am at a place in my life where I am enjoying just coming to church and fellowshipping. I cannot believe the difference when you don't have to preach and you can actually sit back and ask the Holy Spirit this question. Lord, what do you want to say to me today? Not to judge the sermon, not to criticize or to think, well, you could have done better this, but to say, Lord, what are you saying to me today in the workplace, in my marriage? And I want you to think about that as we open in, uh, in just a moment in prayer for God's word today. Lord, what do you want to speak to me? You see, you may come here with your husband or your wife or a friend, and they may talk about something that the Lord showed them, and you go, well, is that the same sermon I was listening to? And what happens is that the Holy Spirit speaks to us individually. He has something fresh and new that he wants to say to you this morning. Well, we have been in a series on the importance of heaven. And as we have looked at this series, I have to tell you a funny story. Pastor Joey, I told him about a year ago, year and a half, that I really wanted to do a series on heaven. And he said, Dad, don't you get any ideas? You're not going there. I said, no, I, I just... I think that every believer, we know snippets about heaven. We know about the judgment. We know about the, you know, the different aspect of a new Jerusalem, a new heaven. But how do we navigate it in such a way that it's a part of our everyday life and our expectation? Anybody here excited about knowing that you're going to be in heaven someday? Boy, when I look at the world today, and I, I am excited about heaven. But here's the thing about Joey. He is, and we used to call him this when he was a kid. He's a stinker sometimes. And the reason he was a stinker is that I felt that the Lord told me to preach this series on heaven. And all of a sudden, when the first message was going forth, Joey goes, you know what, Dad? I'm going to do the introduction. I said, oh, okay. And, and all of a sudden, into week two, week three, week, no, I'll, I've got that covered. No, I've got that covered. All of a sudden, I get to heaven, I mean, so to speak, and there's nothing left for me to preach on. Joey preached the whole series on heaven. So he is a stinker, but I'm glad he's a stinker because he grabbed hold of something that I believe is so pertinent and important in each of our lives. As we were looking at this series, we thought, you know, when you look at heaven and all the different viewpoints of it and all the different TV shows that are about it, we look to the Bible as the authority and our source about the truth of heaven. So maybe perhaps the very first message we should have preached, I'm going to preach at the end. And that is why we must trust the Bible why we must believe in God's word in order to understand our final destination, to know that there is a dwelling place waiting for each of us. 
that there is a mansion being prepared for us. And Jesus said, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. So we're going to cover a lot of scriptures today. I'm going to try and move as fast as I can. Uh, first of all, let's open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to basically focus on as quickly as we can. And there's no way we can cover all of this. But I hope that the juices get flowing and salivating in regards to your love for God's word. Uh, goodness knows I could talk about the Bible and the different stories and the different lessons all day long. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer. And by the way, how many of you know there's people who have answers today to everything? But the word means be ready to defend the faith. Be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And how many of you know that when you know Jesus Christ, you have a hope that is in you? You have a hope that makes you realize that tomorrow, no matter what you're facing today, is worth living because Jesus is our hope. We look at it and it says, but do this with gentleness and respect. How many of you know we live in a culture today that needs gentleness and respect for each other? But the thing that is difficult when you look at this, be ready to give a, a reason for uh, an answer for everyone that asks us, is that we live in a culture today in a world that is spiraling out of control, where each person has their own definition of what truth is in their life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, and I just had to... Uh, read these five verses this morning. It says, In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now this is to young Timothy. This is a charge that is given to each of us as followers of Christ. Preach the word. Would you say that with me this morning? Preach the word. Now say it like you almost believe it. Preach the word. That isn't just something we pay a guy on Sunday to do to, you know, to, to have a, a, a podcast or what. This is something that every one of us as a believer is commissioned to do. Be prepared in season and out of season to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now listen to verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. How can we today, in America, in the 21st century, how can we today be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us or to share the gospel? Because it is centered around the truth of the Bible. And how do we accept the authority 
and the accuracy of the Bible as the word of life, as the word of God, as our final authority today, and basically try to defend the gospel not based upon our opinions, but upon God's word. It's a challenge today, isn't it? You see, yesterday the church and culture shared a general knowledge of the Bible. When I first started out in ministry, you know, there was great respect for the church and those who were ministers. Today, I will say it this way, the church and the world are both biblically illiterate. Yesterday, Christian men and women and leaders were admired. Today, Christian men and women have been called dangerous. Yesterday, we communed on... We com uh, communicated on a level playing field that presumed that truth was an objective reality. Today, we live in a world that communicates the shifting sands of truth as subjective reality. Yesterday, we could express truth through grace. Today, we have to be able to share grace in order to be able to share truth. When we are immersed in an egocentric culture that is more concerned about how many followers I have on Instagram versus being a follower of Jesus Christ, the church has problems. And we're going to ask five crucial questions today, and I'm going to just breeze through them because we want to address these, but I'm not going to answer them specifically. I'm going to answer them in the form of today's sermon as we move through it. I'm just going to write these down, and I sent those out to most of you uh, this last week in an email. There's five crucial questions about the Bible. Number one, is the Bible the words of men, or is it the words of God? Number two, is the Bible full of myths and legends and fairy tales, or is it historically accurate? Is all of the Bible true? Or only certain portions of it. Number four, can a Bible that has been translated so many times for hundreds and literally thousands of years be able to be really accurate? Number five, what makes the Bible so different from all the other world religions and their claims for the truth? Because we hear this woven into the fabric of our culture. Well, you know, Jesus said, you know, that's one of the ways to get to God. Um, seven reasons, and I want you to jot these down today. If you have on your notes or your outline, go to um, uh, your, the app, Cornerstone LV, and you go to the app, and it'll have hopefully most of the notes there for you in outline form. Number one, and write this down, the Bible is historically and scientifically accurate. The Bible tells us in Psalms 33, the word of the Lord is right and true. Hebrews 6.18 says it is impossible for God to lie. Do you realize that there are so many myths that the world scientifically as well as historically have believed through the years until finally later on we discovered something. The earth we thought for thousands of years was flat. 
And yet 2,600 years ago, Isaiah wrote in God's word, God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. 2,600 years before mankind scientifically understood that the earth rotated on its axis and was a sphere and wasn't flat, God gave those words to Isaiah. Of course, the, the Greeks had their own opinion of the earth. They thought that there was a giant guy named Atlas who held it up. The Hindus, they had an even graphic, more graphic visual. They believed five giant elephants stood on their back on the back of a giant turtle swimming on a giant sea serpent that it was those elephants that held up the earth. The Egyptians, they thought it was five pillars. I look at the book of Job and it says that God stretches the sky over empty spaces and he hangs the earth on nothing. When I look at Ptolemy and, and, and in 150 AD, he concluded he counted all of the stars. There were 100 or 1,026 stars. And that was a breakthrough because for 300 years they believed in four less than that. How did Job in chapter 26 where he said God stretches the sky over empty space, that he hangs the earth on nothing, why did Jeremiah 2,600 years before say in Jeremiah 33, 22, the number of stars are infinite? Was Jeremiah a prophet? Yes. Did he know anything about astronomy? No. Could he feel and know and experience the presence of God's word and the Holy Spirit in his life? And so these aspects of when we look through, and there are example after example of historical and scientific facts that have been discovered. And I, I could take all day talking about these because I love stuff like that. But the historical events that took place in the Bible are very simply defined by how we look at other aspects of history. And do you realize that more stories and more things historically have been verified in the Bible than any other ancient book? It doesn't matter if it's Aristotle. It doesn't matter if it's Plato. It doesn't matter if it's Confucius. There are over 20-some thousand examples of historical accuracy that has been proven because of the Bible. How do you know good history? How do you know that the Bible is historically correct? The same way we do with anything else, you go by the test of eyewitness accounts. Was that person there? Was it somebody who recorded the event hundreds of, or thousands of years afterwards? And let me tell you something. The Bible is filled with eyewitness accounts. Moses wrote about the Red Sea when it split. He was there. He saw the waters crash down upon Pharaoh's army. Joshua was there when the walls of Jericho exploded. The disciples were there when they saw Jesus do miracles and change water into wine. Matthew was there. He was there as a tax collector and a man whose life had been redeemed. He wrote it down. John was there and he wrote it down. When he was on the island of Patmos, he wrote down what the revelation of God that he gave to him. 
Peter was there. And Peter was there, and with his young protege, Mark, there are over 25,000 specific places the Bible mentions that are verified by his history. But almost every one of them have been verified by an eyewitness account. I love this quote, and we may have this in the overhead. Dr. Nelson Gluck, who is one of the greatest modern authorities on Israeli archaeology, concludes, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. In other words, it has never disproved, it has never gone against the biblical record. And I got to tell you, I have literally scores of examples that I could use. Things which detail those things of what culture said the Bible is filled with myths where, in fact, when it came to the, when it came to the Egyptian kings, they were all out of order. That was until 1798 when Napoleon went into Egypt and they discovered one of the greatest archaeological finds ever, the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone was used to translate hieroglyphics as it was compared to actual Greek. And so they saw the comparison of it, and then they were able to go back and look at the historical record of the Bible and realize, wow, the Bible is accurate in regards to the different rulers of Egypt. When we look at, in regards to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is probably the most important archaeological find during, uh, just before my lifetime, was in 1947, a couple shepherd boys uh, were out playing uh, around Masada, and it was there they were throwing rocks and into a cave, and they, they heard it crack something, it was a clay pot, and they found within inside of that, they found um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which had portions of every book of the Old Testament that were written from 1,200 years before the earliest record ever recorded. They had records of the Old Testament that went back to about 400 or 500 A.D. And carefully, as you understand, the Jewish scribes and those who painstakingly took every moment they could to be as accurate as they could be, not only did it go back and discover the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it found out that Scripture as passed on from generation to generation was incredibly accurate that the very words that were penned and we have quite a bit of the book of Isaiah but there was a portion of every Old Testament book except for Esther that was there there were for years there were the mention of this thing called Hezekiah's tunnel and people thought ah, it's just another myth in the Bible you know those fairy tales and that was mentioned during the time of Judah during Hezekiah and, and they had mentioned that there was, during the siege of Jerusalem, that there, Hezekiah had taken the, the pool of Siloam and diverted its waters, and they weren't sure how he did it until, once again, a couple of boys in the 1880s were out there being boys, and they were exploring down around some areas, and they found what was later discovered as not only Hezekiah's tunnel, which goes over almost 2,000 feet 
that started on one end of the city and ended on the other and was able to go through solid stone and excavated so that they could divert the waters that went through Jerusalem. To this day, it is considered one of the engineering marvels of the ancient world because they do not know how did they start 2,000 feet apart and be able to go through solid rock, eight feet tall, about four feet wide, five feet wide. How were they able to hew that rock, to excavate through that rock, starting at different ends with no laser sights, no ability to, with sonar understanding. They were able to engineer it in such a way that when the two ends met, they were within centimeters of being exactly a perfect match. Engineers don't know how they did it, but God does. And so I could go on and on and about the destruction of, of Jerusalem by the Babylonians for centuries. People thought this was wrong. The Pool of Siloam was, was a fic fictional place in many people's minds until they discovered it. Not only do we find that the Bible has historically and many aspects of scientifically accurate, number two, jot this down, the Bible itself claims to be the Word of God. And this is a verse that all of us need to know poignantly. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture, part Scripture, just the verses I like. Just as the verses that are appropriate to our culture. No. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God has given us a handbook of life. When we look at, and we looked at the guides of the tender commandments, how amazing that God by his hand etched those 10 commands, those 10 boundaries, those 10 definitions of his care towards us. And by the way, to protect us. Well, I don't need any protecting. Oh, yes, we do. And you know who we need protecting from? Two enemies. One is other people. And two is ourselves. And God gave us the boundaries. Now what's amazing to me, he could have stopped there. But he didn't. He gave us a whole blueprint of how to live our lives. How to treat one another. How to love one another. So when the Bible claims to be the word of God, the inspiring, infallible, authoritative word of God... It's important that we understand what this word inspiration means. It comes from the Greek word theo, which means God, noestos, which means breathe. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes my breath, I don't want to breathe on people because it doesn't, you know, I won't get into that. Can you tell my wife sold my toothbrush to go to California yesterday? I, sorry. When we breathe, that that exhale of breath of life 
used in the same context when the Holy Spirit said, let us make man in our image. And it says, God breathed life into Adam. That same breath is what scripture has been breathed into by the Spirit of God. You know, there's over 3,000 inferences in the Bible where it uses the word, thus saith the Lord. Now, I don't know about you. I, I'm not really good on the King James, but uh, maybe I could just say it. If God says it, then I want to stand by it. Could I say it this way, that the Bible isn't just a good book. It's not just some good stories with good morals to teach people how to live a good life. The Bible is, in fact, the very words and personification of who Jesus is through the spoken word. It is life. The word of God spoken are not only the very words of God, but they are inspired of God. And we have to make a choice. Are we going to live our life modeled after God's word, what he says? Are we going to pick and choose those things that we like and we don't like? Or are we going to adhere to God's word? Number three, jot it down if you would. The Bible's origin is supernatural. And what do I mean by that? It's structure, it's unity. It cries out and proclaims supernatural authorship. Never before in the history of the world has there been anything that covers the scope of topics, authors, and history and years to print or to put into effect than the Bible itself. Not only is it thematically unified, but it is written by over 40 different authors with the same crimson thread of truth and salvation and redemption beginning in the book of Genesis, weaving its way through every passage, every book, until the book of Revelation. Well, what about the other holy books? Well, it's amazing. Did you realize that the Quran was written by one person, Muhammad. The Analexa Confucian was written by one person, Confucius. The writings of Buddha are written by one person, Buddha. When you would expect that these documents of antiquity, of course, they would be unified as they move its way because it's one author, one person. But I want you to just grasp this for a minute and how great and how large and how expansive. It's no different than when the early Greeks looked up and, and, and thought that there was 120-some stars or 1,020-some stars. You realize that there are galaxies of billions and billions of stars and billions of galaxies beyond anything our mind can begin to understand. And so God gave us the inspiration of his word, his holy scripture. He did it through 40 different men and women at different stages of their life in three different languages, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. 
And it was written over the course of 1,500 years from 10 different countries on three different continents or continents representing those who were the authors by more than 20-some different professions. Now, I don't know about you, getting two people in the same room to agree on anything is pretty much an amazing thing today. But could you imagine, and just think of this for a moment, and don't make any lawyer jokes. Okay, if you want to, that's okay. But in that group of authors, there was a fisherman or fishermen, there was the hated tax collectors. There were, I mean, you talk about a diverse group. There were kings. There were princesses. There were prophetesses. There were queens. There was poets and there was prophets. There were scholars and teachers. And there were those who were lawyers. There were those who were businessmen. There were those who were common shepherds. Those who were farmers. Those who were even a doctor, a priest, a musician, and even a tent maker. Those were some of the different people that the Holy Spirit used to author God's Word. I think of Dr. Seuss. He should have written a book about it. It was written in a cave by a guy named Dave on a ship or in prison in a field at night. It was written in a holy temple, a pagan citadel on the plains of the desert in the palace of a king. Forty different authors, scores of different types of expertise and employment. Different places that it took place in different countries and different languages. Do you know in the Bible there are almost three thousand different characters listed now i don't know about you but when you look at the credits at the end of a movie can you imagine it's almost it's better than a steven spielberg movie. good jewish boy you know all those credits that come up three thousand different characters shot on location in over 1500 locations 66 different books some written in literary form, some written as history, some written as science, prophetic, even romance, mystery, poetry. It had it all. There's been over 2 billion publications of the Bible since the 1400s. I can't even imagine the odds are insurmountable of thinking how did all of those authors bring forth a word that was able to have a central theme of Messiah and the hope that there was for Israel and for the world to come. It reminds me, we had a tapestry in the house we used to live in. And I don't know if you've ever seen a beautiful tapestry, but the back side of it's really ugly has all kinds of different threads here and there, and you just go, man, that, that is a, a hot mess. Until you turn it around and you see the beauty of it. And I want you to know that the tapestry of God's Word begins in the book of Genesis, and sometimes we see the threads on the backside. 
but God has woven all of it together with the crimson thread of redemption that weaves its way from the very first book until the book of Revelation. And so when I look at the Word of God, and when I look at the fact that it told of the coming Messiah, I realize what an inspiration and supernatural book the Bible really is. And by the way, I hope you're challenged with this this morning because I am barely scratching the surface on so many of these issues. Number four, we have just a couple more. The life and person of Jesus more than any other fact validates the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus said these words, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus, when he looks at God's word, it's going to last until the end of time. It's going to accomplish the very thing that God sent it forth to accomplish in the world. And understand something. Jesus trusted the Bible. What do you mean? I thought, it, yeah, the Bible, the Old Testament, the Decalogue, the Pentateuch, all of the things that were there in Scripture before the actual New Testament was written, Jesus partnered with all of those things that are viewed as the Old Testament of the Bible. I'll hear somebody from time to time, I don't know if you've heard this well, you know, I like the words of Jesus, but I don't know about those other guys. Some of that other stuff's kind of fishy, if you ask me. And um, here's a challenge I want to put before you. Jesus trusted the Word of God, the Bible, the Old Testament. The Mishnah, the Gemara, the Talmud, all of the law that we see is the Old Testament. John 10 to 35, Jesus just simply said this, Scripture is always true. Jesus proclaimed the truth of Scripture. So if I trust Jesus and he trusted the Bible, doesn't it follow that I trust the Bible because Jesus trusted the Bible? When Jesus talks about the truth of Scripture... And so many times he talked about Old Testament illustrations and the prophet Isaiah. And he talked personally about David and Noah and the great saints of old of Elijah the prophet. And when you look at Jesus and he, he talked about the Old Testament and he talked about those things as object lessons to those when he taught. Or he would settle arguments with a scripture that was pulled from the Old Testament. If, in fact, he believed the single, every single word and sentence, then why don't I? When Jesus talks about the Bible, when he talks about his word, he talks about its changing power over our lives and over sin. Luke chapter 11, verse 28 says, Here's, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God. And what? Can we say that again? And what? 
can't have one without the other. But we've departmentalized it in our culture today. We hear it, but we think obedience is optional. Well, maybe for you, Pastor, I mean, that's how you feel God's speaking to you. Jesus talked about the Word of God, not only as a real book, but he talked about real people in real places of how God worked in their lives. He talked about all of these men and Solomon and David and Elijah and some of those things that are controversial in, in the Old Testament. You ran into some of those conversations with people. There are people go, well, I don't believe that about Sodom and Gomorrah. I just don't think that's true. You know, the account of Adam and Eve. You know, and, and by the way, how many of you know there's things in the Bible I don't understand? There's things that have not yet been revealed. But do you realize not one scientific or archaeological aspect of the Bible has ever been proven to be false? Not one. And we're going to talk about some of those examples in just a moment. Jesus talked about the flood. And he talked about Noah. Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. Why? Because he was there. Let us make man in our image. He believed in the tragedy of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? He taught on it. He believed in Jonah and what happened when he was called to go to Nineveh and turned around and went the other way. And God took what sometimes misnomers called a whale. He took a giant fish and swallowed him and spit him up on the shore. I got to tell you, I don't know how God did it. But he did. And the reason I know that is because Jesus said he did. And if I believe Jesus, I believe in Jonah and the fish story. I don't know how he did it, but I know all fishermen exaggerate their stories. And I'm just kidding. I don't know how they did it. But he did. And those four particular examples of Sodom, Gomorrah, and Noah, and the flood... And boy, there's some incredible history and, and scientific discoveries regarding the flood in, in Babylonian literature, Assyrian literature, in scientific evidence. There was a flood. And you know why I know there was a flood? Jesus said there was a flood. And if I believe Jesus, I believe what he believes. Jesus, as the Messiah was foretold, that would be resurrected from the dead. He believed that. He told his disciples that. But they didn't get it. And how many of you know sometimes the words that Jesus uses and says and does in our life, sometimes we don't get it either. I'm going to trust that because Jesus believed in the Word of God and believed that the Bible was authentic, I'm not going to sit and choose and dissect the Bible and say, well, I like this part, I don't like this part. I'm going to believe that, and, but I'm not going to believe this. Jesus trusted it, so I'm going to trust it. How about you?
St. Augustine said, I believe in the second or third century, that's Chuck, you were alive during that time. Uh, it's good to see you and your lovely bride back from Texas. Uh, he's building a fish pond down there, by the way, and I'm just saying that so that when he invites us all over, all over to a fish fry in the next year, we want to know where we're going. Augustine said this, if you believe in the Bible, or I'm sorry, if you believe in the Bible what you like, and you don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible that you trust. It's yourself. I don't know about you, but I have found that my emotions, my opinions, are not always trustworthy. I trust Jesus. And because of that, I trust the Bible. Number five, and I need to move ahead on these. Number five, the Word of God, why I believe in the Bible is that Fulfilled prophecy authenticates the Bible. Man, this is a fascinating subject and topic. Biblical prophecy sets apart the Bible from any other religious and antique or whatever ancient book or history of anything that's ever been written. Do you know that just in regards to the coming of Messiah in the Old Testament alone, there are over 300 specific prophecies about the Messiah. Over 300. In other words, what's a prophecy? It means it's going to happen in the future. It's going to happen at such and such a time in, in a certain way. And what does that mean? That it means simply this, that when the Bible says it, it it's not only has happened, it will happen if it hasn't been fulfilled yet. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy ever originated from humans. Instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit as God spoke under God's direction. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, But this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in Scripture. And over the course of centuries, literally scores of these prophecies have been fulfilled. When you think in terms of the prophecies that were spoken about the Messiah, about Jesus, many of them were given 1,200 years before they took place. Now think about that for a moment. This isn't some book that we go back to, hey, we need to match this up because, you know, it said back then we need to do No, these were manuscripts that were hidden for 1,000 years that they went back and cross-referenced it and realized it in fact predicted that in God's word hundreds and even a thousand years before. And so there were prophecies, and, and by the way, we, we need to be aware of, of the prophetic word that God gave that has been fulfilled through the person of Jesus so that we're not unaware of what is coming in regards to the second coming of Christ. I very much in my heart and have believed this from the early 70s. My hope and my glory is believing that this any day Jesus could come back for his church. That has never waned. I'd like to say that it has always caused my behavior to be exactly what it should be, but it hasn't. But it's with that hope that with hundreds of prophecies that were given about Jesus. And let me just throw a few at you. Because you know a lot of these. The prophecies, and, and, and it might be good that in, in their 
Uh, and, and Jen, I'm going to go out here on a limb. If you will help me this week, I will put online uh, most of these prophecies and where the scripture reference is so that we can use this in regards to when we share Christ with our neighbors. Here are some of the prophecies that I just wrote down, and most of these I know by heart and off the top of my head, and you too. You've just never been in a situation where you've been challenged to use them. The Messiah would be born and conceived of a virgin. His name would be called Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father. He would be born in a, the town of Bethlehem, and yet he would grow up in the place of Galilee and would be called a Nazarene, even though he was born in Bethlehem. The Bible says that the prophecies before in the Old Testament said that he would be called or would spend a season in Egypt, that he would be a direct descendant and three different prophetic utterances about being a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he would be from the lion of the tribe of Judah. He would be an heir of King David's throne. He would be called the son of man. He would heal the brokenhearted. He would be rejected by his own people, but he would be praised by the little children. He would be betrayed by those close to him, and he would be mocked and ridiculed. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that he would be spat upon and struck, that he would remain silent before his accusers, that they would gamble for Messiah's clothes. He would be called a king, and when that name was placed upon top of the cross, how in the world did the people miss that that was the Messiah, the King of Kings. He, the Bible says in the Old Testament that he would be offered vinegar, that his feet and his hands would be pierced. The soldiers would pierce his side, but no bones would be broken. It talked about the very aspect of all of those things that describe crucifixion. But yet crucifixion would not be invented for another thousand years by the Roman Empire. It was prophesied in the Bible. It says that Messiah would be forsaken by God. That he would be buried with the rich. And that Messiah would resurrect from the dead. Those are just a few. I don't know how many I mentioned. Probably 25 or so. I want you to put that in perspective for just a moment. The odds of 300 prophecies all being fulfilled in one person, the odds are so astronomical, our minds can't even begin to wrap around that. A couple weeks ago, Joey used a rope and talked about eternity and that one little line that is the vapor that we call life. I think it takes more faith to believe that all of this was just a coincidence, that 300 prophecies just happen to center in on one person. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter that no prophecy of Scripture ever originated from the mind of humans. But you know, it's interesting, in all of these prophecies that were spoken, over 300 of them, and before you start thinking, well, you know, those were just Guys, I want to tell you something. You didn't want to be a prophet in the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? 
There was only one test of a prophet. John, you would appreciate this, you know, uh, you know, your lovely wife. You know, a prophet was verified by what? Truthfulness. If one prophecy was not fulfilled, he was labeled a false prophet, and he was dealt with severely. He was killed. He was put to death. There's not a lot of people who wanted to, you know, hey, when I grow up, I want to be a prophet. You know, it only requires that when I call fantasy football, I'm right 100% of the time, and then you're a real prophet. Prophetically, the Bible being accurate and the probability of all of these prophecies coming true through one person is beyond our understanding. Let me, let me give you a statistic that is from uh, Josh McDowell in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He thought in order to, to put this in perspective, let's just take eight prophecies. Let's don't take 25 or 60 or 300. Just take eight prophecies. Given in the Old Testament, what are the odds that all of those eight prophecies given thousands of years before it happened, that it would be fulfilled through one person. Mathematicians set in motion to discover that, and here was their illustration. It would be one to 10 in the 17th power, which I can't even wrap my mind around until I start putting zeros. It means that it is one with 17 zeros after it. Not a million, not a billion, not a trillion, but quadrillions. One in quadrillion chance. Just eight of them. And Josh McDowell uses this illustration. If you took Chuck State, Chuck and Sylvia, the great state of Texas, and covered it with silver dollars two feet deep throughout the whole state, and marked one of them with a red X and then took a blind man and covered his eyes and said, I want you to only have one chance at this. You have to pick out that one silver dollar. Now, I'll tell you what, the price of silver today, that would be really fun. But the odds of that being fulfilled in one person is two feet thick millions and millions and trillions of silver dollars and you reach in and pull out the one that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Number six, the biblical manuscript for evidence is overwhelming. The transmission and the purity and the perseverance of God's word, I don't have the time to get into the meticulous aspects of the scribes and uh, the, and those who were the copyists. Uh, do you know that we look at ancient history and we have maybe 200 or 30 copies of Plato or whatever it may be? Do you know we have over 24,000 copies of Scripture of antiquity? More than any other historical document. And so I don't, I don't have the time to explain all that, but I hope you will be challenged that the manuscript evidence of the Word of God is unbelievable and so historic. And finally, and this is why we're gathered here today in number five, or number seven, I'm sorry, the Bible 
has the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing can change lives like the Word of God. And the reason I can say that with such confidence is because He has changed my life. And He has changed yours. And He has changed literally hundreds and thousands and scores of people throughout the century. Because you see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, who is God, is the full expression and essence of not only the spoken but written Word of Holy Scripture. When we pick up our Bibles, it's not just a book. I've never met, and I've heard so many stories of C.S. Lewis to Malcolm Muggeridge to great men who were agnostics and atheists who said, I'm going to disprove this book. And on their journey, they began, and at the end of it, they were believers because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit woven throughout its pages. The Bible changes lives. It is changing lives today. And it is that hope that we hold out as the extension in a world right now that is filled with vitriol, in a world right now where politicians say that, that they have the key to making more laws in order that things go better for all of us. And I want to tell you something. There's only one thing that will change the heart of man. And that is the Word of God expressed through Jesus, the Messiah. Has your life been changed today because of the Lord? Mine has. And it continues to change. Always desiring to be a little bit more like Jesus. To be a little more loving. To be a little more patient. I have seen... The most self-centered, narcissistic people in the world that have changed because of the power of the Bible. I've seen men who have abused women, who have misused women that were womanizers. And their life was changed because of God's Word. I've seen men and women who were flat-out drunks, those who were irresponsible addicts who became clean and sober because of the power that is in the written Word of God is transpired through the Holy Spirit. I've seen thieves who thought of nothing to rip somebody off. But when the power of the gospel gets a hold of them, they turn their lives around and they go back and repay that which was stolen. I've seen gang members Embrace the very race that they hated at one time in their life. I've been at a prison where I actually heard a murderer who was on death row pray for forgiveness for him killing the people that he had killed. When we read the Bible, I've seen the lives of those who have been transformed. How men who were lousy husbands became a good husband. How kids who were unruly 
men who became wonderful dads and outstanding citizens and unfaithful wives who now today are the epitome of Proverbs 31. And we live in a world that thinks politicians that we can change human behavior by changing laws. And you could change and make all the laws that you want to, but it isn't going to change man's heart. You can make all the laws you want to about racism and bigotry, but no law will ever turn a bigot into a lover. God's got to do that. He's got to do that to us. He's got to change the heart. And I have to tell you that the greatest investment I've ever made is I've invested my life into a business of seeing people change and give their hearts to Christ. I don't have a retirement. I don't have a bank account. I'm not going to sit there and have a great reward or whatever it may be. But I have lived the richest life of all. Because I've seen the word of God come alive. And not only my life and my family, but in your life and your family. And I want you to know that it's God's word that why we study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We study it because it's life-changing. We study it because it's inspirational. We study it because it's true, because Jesus believed it. I want to close with this thought. The most important question that we have in regards to the Bible. What is the final authority that you have in your life? Is it going to be the world? Or is it going to take the L out of that phrase, the world, and be the word? Am I going to listen to public opinion? Be guided by my own feelings, or am I going to listen to God's word? Who's going to have the authority in my life? And I deal with this every day of my life. When I get up in the morning, when I go to sleep at night, God, are you the authority of my life, or am I the authority in my life? Nothing will change our life more than being immersed in God's word. The greatest challenge that I can give to you as we leave this morning is how do we practically accept the authority and accuracy of God's word? Because if you try to live your life based upon your perspective, your thoughts, your perspective, you're not going to be able to stand. I want you to walk away from here today. And if you have never really considered what the authority of Scripture is in your life, I want you to make a decision. You can either accept it or you can reject it. God's given us a free will. But you can't 
disparage it and you can't sit and choose what you want and what parts you want to believe and what parts you don't want to believe because Jesus believed all of it because he was all of it you can't pick and choose because if you do you are setting yourself up as the final judge of your life and your values and your eternity of whether or not we're in heaven. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, the book of Colossians tells us to let the word of God dwell in us richly. You know, we're to speak to one another in hymns and songs and spiritual songs. You know, we're to study to show thyself approved. We're to preach the gospel. We're to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And so, Lord, forgive us this day when we have taken your words so lightly. Forgive us when we have dissected scripture to fit our own needs and our own perspectives. Forgive us for those times when we cowered in the presence of a conversation that because it was one of the tough things that Jesus said, we don't want to offend anybody, so we avoid the conversation. And Lord, all we have to do is look around our culture right now and realize what happens when you avoid the truth of the gospel. Lord, we live in a culture right now That the psalmist proclaims that I knew you in your mother's womb when you were fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet, Lord, as the pagan cultures of old, the Romans, even King Herod, they put to death babies. And even in Moses' day, if they weren't the right sex, Lord, forgive us our sin. Forgive us when we have not stood up and spoken the word of God with grace and with purity. And Lord, thank you that today is a new day. And that today I can walk forth from this place and say, Lord, I'm going to choose to not only believe the Bible, I'm going to do what it says. Lord, the world is tired of hearing about religiosity. They're tired of seeing a church in a culture that says, lifting hands of how we love and adore Jesus. But once we leave our sanctuaries, we act no differently than anyone else. Lord, may we be men and women of your word. May you, as your word tells us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. For Lord, they shall be satisfied. I love it when I've 
been playing with the grandkids or playing in the swimming pool and I'm worn out and I need thirst and I'm hungry because that's the very context that Jesus uses that the Word of God and only the Word of God will satisfy our souls may your words become our words may your ways be our ways we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everyone together said, Amen. Joy. Thank you for joining us today. And a special thanks to those who give to Cornerstone. You know, it's because of you, our ministry, it's possible. Uh, you can click the link in the description to give now or visit us at cornerstonelv.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe. You can share it with friends, share it with family. Help us spread God's word. You can also join us live every Sunday. We invite you 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. We stream service live. Thank you again for listening.